All right, all right, all right. Welcome one, welcome all to today's webinar titled The Power of Alignment and Intrinsic Motivation and Continuous Improvement. I am your host, Clint Corley, joined by my esteemed colleague and presenter, Mark Graven. Mark, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Sure thing, Clint. Thanks for hosting today. Anytime, anytime. So today's presenter, uh, most people here probably already know him, Mark Graven. He's a senior advisor to Kinexus. He is also the president of Constancy Incorporated and the author of a number of different books, namely Lean Hospitals, Healthcare Kaizen, Practicing Lean, and Measures of Success. With no further ado, Mark, I will turn it over to you. Okay, Clint. Thank you, and, and thank you to everybody for attending today. So I want to share some thoughts around uh, motivation and um, alignment when it comes to continuous improvement, whether that's through lean or whatever uh, methodology. I'm, I'm partial to lean and, and the Kaizen um, component of lean or the Toyota production system. But there's a really common question uh, that comes up when organizations are learning about continuous improvement. Uh, in fact, I uh, was I, I just got back from Japan yesterday, and so hopefully my energy level sounds good enough. I'm jet lagged, and uh, I think I just gotten adjusted to Japan time. It's now middle of the night in Japan, so hopefully I don't sound like uh, I feel like it's middle of the night. But I'll tell you, even this question came up last week. We had somebody there um, from Singapore, and their healthcare system has been embracing lean and continuous improvement. And they asked this exact same question. And I, I don't fault anyone for asking the question because again, it comes up like literally almost every time um, I'm, I'm helping introduce people to continuous improvement or Kaizen. This question or some form of it asks, you know, should we give incentives or rewards for people's participation in Kaizen? Should we, do we have to, are there problems caused by this? These are some of the themes I'm gonna talk about today. So people talk about, not just in this context, but in other ways, they talk about rewards and recognition. I always think it's interesting. Maybe it just sounds better. It rolls off the tongue instead of saying recognition and rewards. I don't know if that's really true, but maybe it's just our bias toward rewards. This is something that organizations uh, of all types and all industries I, I think have tried to do as, as part of, you know, sort of traditional management approaches. And so then it's maybe it's, it's natural and unsurprising when lean or continuous improvement enters the picture that we're still thinking about incentivizing people. But again, last week in Japan, we went to Toyota and the tour guide talked about Kaizen, of course, and they talked about what they call their uh, creative suggestion system, I believe is, is the term. If I have that wrong, I'll blame jet lag. Again, but I think it's interesting. The word creative is definitely um, part of that. But the tour guide I asked about, um, you know, uh, on behalf of the others attending, uh, you know, is there anything paid um, to you when you have an idea? And she said that, yeah, there's, you know, a minimum of 500 yen paid for ideas. There was another company we visited later in the week. It was a smaller manufacturing company. And they said, and I think this was across the board, that every idea that was implemented paid out 100 yen. Now, if you're not familiar with the exchange rate from yen to dollars, like 500 might sound like a lot, but when you lop off two zeros at the end, this is really just the equivalent of uh, a Lincoln or a Washington. 
So I think it's interesting that at least in these cases, you know, these companies are giving small rewards. Sometimes organizations, and this is true back in the era of suggestion boxes, you know, they, they, they would dabble or experiment with large rewards. And, I, and I'll come back to, to that point later around how can this uh, can sometimes get dysfunctional. But again, you know, these small rewards, maybe it's a form of recognition. These small rewards are generally paid for what are relatively small ideas. This is something I blogged about back in 2014. You can find this article on my blog. When I toured the factory in 2014, I asked the tour guide if she had ever spoken up about a Kaizen idea. Did they listen to her and what was the process? And uh, one of the examples, and I sketched it out crudely here, um, you'll see I'm, I'm not an artist. They don't allow you to take pictures in the factory. But as we we're walking along the mezzanine and the catwalk, um, going through the factory with the tours, there are different spots where the tour guide would stop and grab a microphone and, and talk to us about um, what was being illustrated in that part of the plant. And the Kaizen was that there was a, a metal hook attached to the railing at different points because the tour guide has a bag that she carries along with her. And she said that um, this was uh, a Kaizen idea. So something really simple, but in, in the spirit of Kaizen, this makes life a little bit easier for the tour guides. You know, the factory is clean, but if, if they don't want to set their nice bag on the ground, you know, having a hook is really not a bad thing to do or not an expensive thing to consider implementing. So if you pay five bucks for that idea, Maybe that's um, not a bad form of recognition. It's something. It's a token reward. Now, the solar manufacturing company that was giving 100 yen or $1, we were in the office area where they had, because um, you can see for those of you who are Kinexus users, you might cringe, but they had binders full of Kaizens, to use that phrase, binders full of Kaizens. And um, every, every sheet of paper in, the, in these binders is a, a single page uh, before and after summary of different improvements that have been done. I don't have the exact count, but there are, these are thick binders. There's lots of Kaizen's here. And as they said in this factory, they were very uh, specific and intentional when they said, when you look at all of this participation, they said, Kaizen is voluntary. And that's something I've heard from other organizations and, and that's something I've tried to teach and advocate for. Because at this factory, they said that, um, you know, they're afraid when they, if they set um, a, a numerical target or quota that uh, that wasn't necessarily driving the right behavior. So you can have an environment where Kaizen is voluntary and you have huge participation. So you might ask, well, what's their motivation? If they're just getting a buck or two, what's their motivation for doing this? And if we go back and look at, dictionary definitions of motivation, um, you know, motivation is a noun. Motivation exists. It's something that's there or maybe not there. The dictionary is one, at least one of them says, you know, the reason or reasons one has for acting are behaving in a particular way. So we can think about what are the reasons why somebody would part participate in Kaizen? There are many um, sort of, you know, uh, examples of intrinsic motivation. We do Kaizen because I don't want my bag to be uh, a little bit uh, scuffed up or dirty because I'm setting it on the floor. Intrinsic motivation is a very powerful driver for Kaizen and really helps build this culture of continuous improvement. The dictionary also uh, says this is the general desire or willingness of someone to do something. 
general willingness to participate in Kaizen. So if this motivation is lacking or maybe appears to be lacking, then we come to the word motivate, which is a verb. We're taking action. We're trying to create motivation through the different actions that are intended to motivate. So the dictionary again says, you know, we're, you're providing someone with a motive for doing something. And now I think, well, hmm, I don't know. Is this veering into maybe dangerous territory if we're telling someone they should care or that they should feel motivated? It would be easier for someone to say, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't really feel that motivated. Um, but we can do more as leaders than just telling people that they should participate. The other dictionary definition talks about stimulating someone's interest or enthusiasm for doing something. I think, well, that might be a little bit more constructive approach. Instead of just telling someone they should be motivated, let's do some things to develop or strengthen the motivation that's already there. And in some of that language I'm using comes from a methodology you might have heard of in one of our recent webinars back in September about an approach called motivational interviewing. So if you didn't see it, I'll encourage you to go back into the webinar library. Um, Mark Valenti gave this presentation talking about how leaders can strengthen people's motivation. We interview people, we draw out the motivations they already have so that we can get people from ambivalence, ambivalence about participating in continuous improvement, for example, um, to actually taking action. So again, highly recommend that webinar. So when we talk about motivation, motivating people, there's this really common expression we talk about or people talk about uh, the carrot and the stick, or sometimes you hear the carrot or the stick. And the implication is that, you know, the carrot is motivation. I mean, I guess you've got to like carrots for that to be motivating or the stick, and the implication is that the stick is used to threaten people or to hit people, which doesn't seem like that. that that's not lean thinking, that's not respectful, that's not what we should have in a modern workplace, but there, there's sort of a, a common misunderstanding about this old expression, because it really was, it was not the carrot or the stick. The original expression is the carrot and the stick. They're meant to be used together, and the stick is actually used to dangle the carrot. So the stick is actually just sort of part of how we facilitate this uh, supposed incentive or motivation. And my, my crude drawing coming up next might not exactly illustrate how it was used, but the intent of the carrot and the stick, uh, the, the origin of this was used uh, to help uh, coax donkeys into moving forward to try to get this carrot. So now if we think to the workplace, I'm like, well, we shouldn't think of our employees or our coworkers as donkeys. We think of, you know, back to the carrot or the stick. Good luck hitting a donkey with a stick. I mean, I've never tried this. I've never ridden a donkey. But uh, people say if you hit a donkey with a stick, it just gets angry. It gets scared. It, it's, it stops. That hitting a donkey with a stick doesn't do anything to drive it forward. Um, this promise of a carrot might do something. And somebody, a friend of mine pointed out once, well, kind of the cruel thing here is that maybe the donkey doesn't ever get the carrot. So, you know, we, we have some of these, these crude models of, um, you know, supposed motivation. If we just dangle a carrot in front of employees, then they will participate in Kaizen. So I don't know if that's really the only 
possible countermeasure if we think of um, carrots or money or other incentives. But these these different attempts to motivate, you know, these are different countermeasures. John Shook from the Lean Enterprise Institute, formerly of Toyota, you know, asked a great question. Well, what problem are we trying to solve? If we think we're having to motivate or incentivize people, do we really understand the current state? Do we understand something close to a root cause? What's the problem? And so at a high level, people might say, well, the problem is there's not enough improvement taking place. We need better results as a business. Well, instead of blaming people, we, we could ask why. Why aren't we getting enough improvement? It could be, well, is, is the problem that people aren't speaking up? Is it that people aren't improving? Is the problem you know, that they're not documenting what they've done? But you know, all these sort of attempts at, at looking at causes, really to me, when, when we're focused on the people, it starts sounding like blame. And again, you know, in lean thinking, uh, we, we're, we're not supposed to be blaming individuals. We're supposed to be looking at um, systems and our environment and our culture, and we should be asking why. Why is there a lack of participation? Why is there a lack of motivation? Or why is there the appearance of a lack of motivation? Is that the problem? Or is it a lack of confidence that people have where they have ideas that like to participate, but maybe they're afraid that their ideas aren't good. Maybe they have a lack of confidence that um, their idea will be well received. So a lot of this, and, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, starts pointing back um, to leaders and organizational culture as a root for a lack of participation, a lack of motivation, a lack of confidence, a lack of improvement. Uh, so there's an article from uh, HBR and their Working Knowledge publication. Um, I think you can find this freely um, online, an article from 2006. The headline here, why your employees are losing motivation. And they, uh, there's an assumption here that they had motivation um, to begin with. Um, but I, you know, I think this is true. Like if we're, if we're hiring people who don't have motivation or enthusiasm on the day they walk in the door, maybe that points to a problem in our hiring process. So I think people generally do show up on their first day of work, or especially on the first day of their career, they want to make a difference. They have motivation, they want to accomplish something. But as this HBR article says, most companies have it all wrong. They don't have to motivate their employees, they have to stop demotivating them. I think it's a really powerful idea, and I, and I forget if this article cited um, one of my biggest influences, uh, Dr. Deming, W. Edwards Deming. In his book, Out of the Crisis, and in his other work, Dr. Deming basically wrote these same things in the 1980s, and I'm sure he had been saying it for decades before that. Dr. Deming said, you know, one is born with intrinsic motivation, self-esteem, dignity, cooperation, curiosity a joy in learning. And then he adds, these attributes are high at the beginning of life, not just the beginning of our careers, but are gradually crushed by the forces of destruction. Like, well, here's some colorful language, like he's getting all Game of Thrones on us or something. I don't, I don't know, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but that seems like the type of show or, you know, it's like this imagery of like, you know, the forces of destruction, that sounds like a powerful force that we're up against, but th this, this is not some uh, force we have nothing to do about. You know, these forces of destruction are, are created 
um, in organizations or there's a long history of it. So as Dr. Deming outlines in his book, he lists a number of forces of destruction. Some of this starts in, in school. There, there are different studies that show um, you know, creativity and enthusiasm of kids uh, starts going down dramatically when uh, they start being assigned letter grades or numerical grades. You know, in kindergarten, at least uh, back in the day, maybe this has changed, but um, kids are there to learn and to grow. And then as soon as they start getting grades, um, you, you see marked differences in their creativity and their enthusiasm. Dr. Deming talked about, you know, merit systems, um, but he also talked about, and I think these are the key things related to motivation, whether it's Kaizen or other participation, you know, incentive pay or numerical goals without a method. So an example of this might be telling everyone, you've got to implement 10 Kaizen ideas this year without having a method, without having leadership support, without having culture that supports that. So Deming said, you know, these forces, they, they crush out joy in learning, joy on the job and innovation. Extrinsic motivation gradually replaces intrinsic motivation, self-esteem and dignity. So this is one of the risks that happens when we start paying people to do something they might otherwise feel naturally inspired to do. The focus now turns to the incentive. And if the incentive got cut or goes away, people might not might now say, oh, forget it. I'm not participating anymore where if we had been able to rely on and build upon and draw out intrinsic motivation, joy in work or pride in work, um, we wouldn't risk that going away if um, uh, the company stopped offering the extrinsic motivation. So even you know, a more modern view of, of this same idea comes from Daniel Pink's outstanding book, Drive, where he talks about um, incentives and extrinsic motivation. And he says, well, you know, Extrinsic motivation works. The problem with it, though, is the side effects. And so one of the dangers, as he talks about in his book, is that, again, extrinsic motivation replaces intrinsic motivation and that those, those extrinsic motivations um, aren't as strong. Or I've seen cases where, you know, at some point, let's say if you're offering $5 for Kaizen, well, people get very used to that. And then maybe $5 isn't motivating. So now management says, well, maybe we should offer 10 and now that, that might spiral out of control or be unsustainable. But if you'd like to learn more about that, um, I, I recommend his book, Drive, or I did a podcast uh, with Dan back in 2010. You can find that um, also through my blog or through uh, different podcast feeds. There's a, a different study that was published that says, when we think about um, you know, sort of crushing intrinsic motivation, in 85% of companies, employees' morale sharply declines after their first six months and continues to deteriorate for years afterward. So this is a study from you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, I don't know if things have really changed or gotten better since then. But Dr. Deming, again, talked about this um, in Out of the Crisis, where he illustrated it in a very similar way that You'd say at the beginning uh, of our lives or the beginning of our careers. Um, unfortunately, the things that happen to people in the workplace usually do nothing but demotivate people over time. So if people ask, well, you know, what should we do to motivate people? Again, there's that sort of opposite question brought up in these different books and different studies that says, well, what should we stop doing? Should we stop doing the things that demotivate people? In, uh, in ways that are often um, quite harmful or quite sad. 
So there's often this focus on rewards and recognition. And to borrow an old um, political campaign phrase, we might say, ah, it's the behavior, stupid. And well, I, I don't like that expression because, you know, don't want to call people stupid. But so instead of the old saying, it's the economy, stupid, um, we'll, we'll strike economy, we'll strike stupid and say, well, it's about behaviors. It's about leadership behaviors. As Dr. Deming said, in a lot of cases, what we need to do is substitute leadership. We can eliminate incentives, quotas, targets, and what do we do instead? We can substitute leadership, the right kinds of leader behaviors that, again, draw out people's intrinsic motivations to improve their own work, to improve things for patients and healthcare, to improve things for the organization, because hopefully they view that all as being a win-win. If I help the organization do well, I will also do well. We are looking at an example, um, one of my favorite books. This is a lean novel, um, a business novel, Andy and Me and the Hospital. A uh, great book by uh, my friend, and uh, I would call Pascal a sensei of mine, uh, Pascal Dennis, who uh, worked for Toyota in Canada for a long time. In his book, you know, he talks about leader behaviors for strategy deployment, or we could call these leader behaviors for creating a culture of continuous improvement, you know, it starts off with defining purpose clearly, identifying the biggest obstacles and maybe the things that require the biggest types of improvements. But not all improvements need to be big. When we talk about Kaizen and continuous improvement, that starts with small improvements. And as Pascal said, leaders need to, I think this is the key point here, create an atmosphere conducive to initiative and creativity. So instead of blaming people for not taking an initiative or blaming them for not being creative, we need to look, sometimes look in the mirror or look at the organizational culture and ask what's stifling people, what's demotivating them. Um, and then uh, the fourth, I, I think this also applies, the fourth thing on Pascal's list is reduce hassle. If the continuous improvement process is too much of a hassle, that might be the barrier or the reason why people don't participate. So again, if we think about rewards and recognition, I think lean thinking would prompt us to ask, well, instead of jumping to countermeasures, ask, well, you know, these are a countermeasure to what problem? And again, a lot of times the, in, in, the, in the balance of rewards and recognition, rewards really um, dominates. Incentives, bonuses, offering raises, you know, that, that your pay increase may be partly driven by your participation in continuous improvement. I've seen organizations do that. Um, organizations set targets or quotas. But, you know, rewards sound great. But again, as Dan Pink said, the problem is they often get dysfunctional. If we look at what happened um, in, in just three cases here, the, uh, the Veterans Health Administration had a scandal where all across the country um, there were uh, incentives or you know threats um, kind of dangled in front of um, uh, clinic managers. Said, well, if, if the patient waiting times are too long, you're going to be punished. And so this led to all sorts of uh, dysfunction, gaming of the system, fudging of the numbers. Patients were being put on unofficial waiting lists to get on the waiting list. There were all kinds of um, you know, understandable things that happened that were being driven by the system. 
um, the 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 um, office of the inspector general, um, or uh, one of these, uh, or maybe it was office of management and budget. One of these kind of government government oversight groups. But then the government said the waiting time targets were quote unrealistic. And so when we give people an unrealistic target, and then we um, offer rewards or threaten punishment, that often leads to a lot of really dysfunctional things. In the British National Health Service, they've had longstanding targets around uh, the idea that no patient wait should wait more than four hours in accident and emergency. And that leads to all sorts of dysfunctional behavior, including admitting patients unnecessarily because then the clock stops ticking and now they didn't wait more than four hours, but now they're clogging up an inpatient bed, which does what? It lengthens waiting time for other patients. And, and, and I saw an article earlier this year that said the NHS is thinking about eliminating the target because A, most hospitals or a lot of hospitals weren't hitting the target, even after the target and rewards and, and threats being in place for um, a very long time. And I think they were also recognizing that the target alone wasn't really driving improvement. Um, third case, the Wells Fargo scandal, where um, the CEO uh, set a target. I think the target was eight accounts per customer um, because eight is great, like literally like just because of a rhyme. And that eight number turned out to be unrealistic. And managers and bankers started opening up um, accounts without permission. And, you know, Wells Fargo, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the CEO eventually got pushed out, but thousands of people got fired for quote unquote acting unethically when arguably this is all driven uh, by these systemic factors and, and there's a lot of tragedy about how this has affected um, people's careers. So there's that caution is that rewards sound like they make sense. They might work in the short term, but they might cause different problems. So when people ask about paying for ideas, paying for implemented ideas, you know, it, the, 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 on the pro side, it seems motivating. It might get attention and participation from some people who might not have participated naturally. And, and then it also seems fair to share savings. This is definitely part of the dynamic of old suggestion box systems. But the, the disadvantages can be um, things like, well, it can discourage teamwork. Like if we're paying the person or one person with an idea, um, this was definitely a trap of suggestion box systems. Um, it really, uh, it really hurts the team environment. If we're trying to share savings, it, it quickly seems unfair if we can't agree on the value of an idea. We end up arguing about, you know, the employee might be uh, incentivized or is being incentivized to overinflate the value of the idea, and management might want to uh, say no, it really wasn't worth that much. Um, it can take the focus off improvement. It requires a bureaucracy to manage. It can harm creativity. But when we try to flip the balance and, and maybe talk about recognition and rewards, where again, rewards might think, might be like, you know, points uh, toward uh, different uh, rewards, um, cash, time off, shared savings, drawings, performance appraisals. Recognition might include things like thank yous, smiles, handshakes. I mean, last I checked, those are all free. Um, they're they're easy to give if if we're willing to as leaders. Um, we can give public recognition. Now, some people get embarrassed by this and they don't want to be recognized in front of their team. They'd rather have uh, kind of a, a private handshake or a fist bump or a, a, a private thank you, good job, pat on the back. 
Um, sharing improvements uh, across the organization is a great way to give recognition. Uh, maybe having an annual awards ceremony, um, not just to choose um, you know, the idea, I, you know, I think I would be afraid that choosing like, oh, here's the award for the biggest cost saving idea that might get dysfunctional. But we could give awards to a lot of people for creative Kaizens or Kaizens that made a difference in different ways. Uh, at the Franciscan St. Francis Health System in Indianapolis, where my co-author Joe Schwartz works, they really emphasize recognition. They have a point system where people can earn cups of coffee and, and logo merchandise. But one of the things and you see here in this picture of Andy, who works in endoscopy, you see she has a badge holder clip that um, celebrates that she's a Kaizen star and that she has implemented 200 ideas. And people there at Franciscan really do take note. If someone's got one of these Kaizen stars it's a, that has a 25 or a 50 or a 100, I mean, you can do virtual badges like this in uh, the Kinexus system if you're a Kinexus customer. Um, things like this um, can really, uh, really, really do more to emphasize improvement than cash payments might. So, you know, if we do want to pay for ideas, I think some of the things that um, are proven to work or at least um, are, are less dysfunctional is small payments. At Franciscan, um, sort of like that one manufacturing company in, in Japan, um, they give small, even payments for, for any idea. It's based on implementation of the idea, of course, and it includes all who participated. So if five people are listed on a Kaizen summary, all five of them will get that 100 yen, or five of them at Franciscan will get the points that are worth you know, probably about two bucks each in the cafeteria. Now, if somebody really does have occasionally an idea that's a multi multi-million dollar cost savings, Organizations usually have some sort of process for giving special recognition and a special bonus if they deem that appropriate. If we're setting goals, I think we have to be careful that it's a goal that expresses a belief in people. I believe everyone can come up with four ideas this year, but there's a risk that that goal is a quota where at the end of the year, people race around. Uh, this is probably happening here in December in some organizations, they're racing around saying, oh, I've got to get my four. Well, they might come up with superficial ideas or ideas that aren't really that meaningful. <clears throat> but then there's always the, there's also the risk that a goal of four becomes a limit where people say, okay, well, I've already got my four submitted. I've got two, but I'm not going to submit them yet because maybe next year they're going to raise the goal to eight. And I don't know if I can come up with eight, so I'm going to hold these back and apply them toward next year. So that, that's a little bit of dysfunction. And, you know, if we set goals, I think, again, it's important if we're not hitting those goals to ask why, or we could ask, like they do at Franciscan, how might we? How might we improve the system that um, dry, in a way that drives participation? And I think it comes down to leader behaviors of enthusiasm and recognition and coaching and support, as Dr. Deming, again, would say, substitute leadership, that the right behaviors lead to employee participation. And we've done a lot of webinars in the past. Um, I've done them. Greg Jacobson um, has done them with me. Other presenters have talked about these behaviors that help drive um, improvements. That's why I'm not really giving a huge laundry list of what those behaviors are. But when you have that right environment 
and a lot of our Kinex's customers do. As this article in CAP today a few years ago pointed out, Kinex's clients on average implement more than 80% of the ideas that are submitted. That's really good. Suggestion box systems uh, classically only implemented two to 3% of ideas because again, suggestion boxes were generally looking for big, huge ideas. Where Kaizen, um, again, usually starts with the small ideas. And as people build capabilities and confidence, they're going to start implementing bigger, uh, they're gonna start solving bigger problems, maybe with bigger countermeasures. But I think one of the lessons and one of the things I've seen in different settings is that if you don't get participation, there's no hope for alignment. So one of the classic lessons going back to Masaki Amai and his book um, uh, Kaizen is to say at the beginning phases of building a culture of continuous improvement, you basically just want to encourage people to implement anything that matters to them, solving problems that matter to them. Don't worry too much about alignment to organizational goals. This is another common question I get. It's like, well, does every Kaizen idea need to align with True North? And, and, and generally, I would say, well, no. I mean, they don't all need to. So let, let's unpack this idea a little bit. Because I think, you know, if you get participation, you can then aim for alignment. I think the risk is when people push too hard on alignment, if the alignment focus is too heavy, then I think we find participation ends up being too light. One of the dysfunctions here might be uh, that management is asking only for improvements with financial benefit because they're really trying to align to financial goals. Employees, honestly, in, in a lot of cases, might not care about that. So if you let people work on things that matter to them, you know, classic Kaizen advice in terms of making your work easier, improving safety, improving quality, if we keep things in balance, the right level of alignment, I, I think we um, tend to get more participation. So if we're look, looking for alignment, there's alignment in what we're measuring through the practice of strategy deployment, if you're using that within the context of lean. And we're also looking for the right level of alignment in our improvement activities. So if you look at, this is kind of a classic Toyota diagram that uh, the, what you see here is modified from something that was in the book, the Toyota Way Field Book. This is from uh, Franciscan St. Francis Health. You, know, you talk about roughly three types or three levels of Kaizen. You've got the large Kaizen, the high complexity, expensive, big projects, big countermeasures that are intended to address big challenges. Then you've got the middle level, which might be lean events, Six Sigma projects, A3s. Um, and then you've got the bottom level that you might call daily Kaizen, all of the, uh, the small, little, little improvements. And so what I've seen is that you know, with the small Kaizens, when that activity is spread out and distributed throughout the organization, we don't really have to worry about alignment. Because again, I think in, in a successful Kaizen or continuous improvement culture, people are testing and implementing and evaluating their own ideas. This all shouldn't fall, it can't fall on leaders or continuous improvement specialists. So again, I would say you know, small Kaizen doesn't require too much alignment. It's the large Kaizen 
that now might consume a lot of resources and, and there might be conflicts um, over scarce organizational resources, then alignment might matter more. So if we're trying to align measures, kind of classic framework uh, in Lean is to look at things like safety, quality, cost, and morale. We have people who use Kinexus to align um, their True North dashboard in terms of these categories and their metrics and their activities to try to look and see, you know, they're, they're trying to get a balance of um, improvement that's not just focused directly on cost, but um, again, focusing on things that matter like safety. Now, alignment doesn't necessarily mean that everybody measures the exact same thing. I'll, I'll give you a healthcare example where, you know, if we're looking at safety and when we look at a health system, we're going to have a mix of inpatient care, outpatient care, emergency department. And we might start off by saying, well, all the inpatient units are going to measure patient falls as a contributor to patient harm, which might be the high level metric for the organization. And the outpatient clinics might be measuring employee sprains and strains because patient falls might not really be a big concern in the outpatient clinic setting. But there was one organization I visited where, you know, thankfully because they had, um, they, they, they practiced catch ball, they had um, feedback from their employees. Somebody in the labor and delivery unit pointed out and said, you know, I don't think patient falls is really the right thing for us to be measuring because Mothers, we, we, we don't have problems with that. Um, and, and, I, and I think that shows a really, uh, you know, that, that's a positive sign that people felt free to speak up. If they just kept their mouth shut and were being measured on patient falls and they felt like, well, that's pretty easy to get a zero uh, in, in, in that measure, they, they could have taken, if you will, the easy A. But they spoke up and said, well, I forget what they measured, but they said, you know, there's something that's a more important measure for us in labor delivery. Um, so they were working toward alignment, which then helps align these different departments to the activities that they should be um, initiating to affect the measure that matters. So choosing the right measure that's not identical but aligned, I think, then helps um, uh, help drive um, or help align the improvement activity that could be taking place in that department. So again, I think you know we do need to prioritize the large things. Uh, someone else I really admire and would consider a mentor, uh, Dr. John Toussaint, always emphasizes you know, the idea of what are the must-do, can't-fail initiatives for our organization. And this is a picture he shared, and I've gone through similar exercises in different health systems of saying, you know, if we have the executive team brainstorm all of the supposed top priority initiatives, you might have 300 of those for the organization. And at that point, there's a lack of focus. If everything is a top priority, nothing is a top priority. And we tend not to accomplish as much as if we um, helped create focus and alignment. So as uh, Dr. Toussaint talks about, and as he practices as a leader, at some point you're deselecting ideas. It doesn't mean, no, we're not gonna do it, but we're gonna say, no, not right now. And again, we have people within the Kinexus platform um, deferring um, different improvement ideas as, as a different form of saying, not rejected, not a bad idea, just not right now. So again, you know, back to this uh, illustration where I think we do need to prioritize and try to get alignment around large Kaizen. Don't need to do so as much when we get to the smaller Kaizen part of that scale. 
So a few final thoughts to wrap up here. Um, back to this common question. Should we give incentives or rewards for participation in Kaizen? I think after some conversation or even after some experience, the question changes a little bit where people might ask, well, do we have to give incentives or rewards for participation in Kaizen? Yes, no, maybe. How do we give incentives? What types of rewards? I think there's nuance here. Do we have to? No. Can we? Sure. I think that's for you to decide based on your organization, your culture, your organization's history and expectations. Not every organization is the same. Or I would encourage you to go through your own organizational plan, do, study, adjust cycles. Try something and see what works. At Franciscan, they have experimented with different drawings and different other uh, incentives and rewards and through their own practice of PDSA, they've actually kind of backed off on some of those reward programs and they've done more to focus on leader behaviors and coaching leaders so that they do things that help uh, people's intrinsic motivation um, come out and shine. So I'm an engineer, I'm not the most literary person uh, in the world, but um, I remember in high school I had to study, see it sounded like this, I was forced to, maybe I didn't have intrinsic motivation to study Emerson, but as Emerson said, you know, moderation in all things. And I think some of that applies to uh, what we might try to do with uh, incentives and different attempts to motivate others. We might want to uh, think about uh, not taking things too far and, and looking for uh, a sweet spot where maybe extrinsic motivation is helpful, but let's not do it in a way that completely crushes intrinsic motivation. Going back further in time, I don't remember if I ever read The Odyssey by Homer, but he said, I think he's the origin of this, this quote you hear a lot, sort of this Zen idea of, in all things, balance is better. So how do we balance our urge or our habit of, of trying to drive participation through extrinsic motivation? How can we balance that maybe with better, uh, more successful attempts to draw out and build upon intrinsic motivation? I've certainly, I think I've shared some thoughts and, and viewpoints and opinions on this. I'm not saying my way is the only way. I'm curious to hear what feedback um, you have um, through the Q&A session or uh, beyond. We'll share email addresses here uh, at the end. I encourage you to, to reach out if you want to talk about any of this or share any of your experiences. And ah, look, here's a, a defect. There's a random hashtag here because uh, the talk I'm giving today is sort of an evolution of a talk I first gave at the Kinexus user conference. So I'll use that as an opportunity to plug Kinexicon 2020. If you're a Kinexus customer, I hope you'll join us. Um, so with that, Clint, I will take a bit of a breath here and hand things over to you for announcements and then Q&A. Fantastic, fantastic. <clears throat> Excellent presentation, Mark, as, as always. Thank you for taking the time to put everything together and spend the time uh, with us today. We do have a few questions. Uh, before we get to them, we'll just go through a, a couple announcements. Upcoming webinars from the Kinexus and Kinexus team. Uh, we are hosting training team office hours, December 19th from 1 to 1.30 Eastern time. Mark and Greg will be hosting an Ask Us Anything, uh, episode number 26, 
January 17th from 1 to 1.30 Eastern. You can always check out uh, our on-demand webinar library on the Kinexus website. We would encourage Let me just, oh, I'm sorry, I was just going to jump in and say I should have put the URL on here, but it's kinexus.com slash webinars. And uh, I am working on lining up the 2020 webinar presenters. So we'll continue this as a monthly series uh, again, of course, next year. Of course, we want to encourage everyone to follow the Kinexus blog. That is blog.kinexus.com. It's a great way to start your day. We'll deliver our, our blog post right to your inbox. And then lastly, um, you can always check out the Kinexus podcast at www.kinexus.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever it is the kids are listening to podcasts. <laughs> um, so, uh, Mark, we do have, we do have a couple questions. Uh, and we've got about 15 minutes here. So if there's anybody else in the audience that has additional questions, please drop those uh, into the questions section of the GoToWebinar window. Uh, we'll try to get to all of them before we run out of time. Um, first, Mark, just, just kind of curious, you talked about not focusing on motivating employees, but instead focusing on not demotivating people. And, and one of the things you also talked about was just the need to make it easy for people mm -hmm. to participate in things because the focus should be on participation first and then and then alignment second. I was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about the importance of making it easy to participate and, and maybe give us some examples of, of processes you've seen that were easy and, and maybe some you've seen that were not so easy. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think especially for small Kaizen Ideas, um, you know, small ideas to address relatively small problems. That's that's where we really have to make it easy, not create uh, too much bureaucracy or too much structure. At Toyota, you know, as I talked about in that blog post from 2014, I asked the tour guide, you know, so what what happens if you have an idea? And what she said was so simple. And uh, you know, she said, well, if I have an idea, I talk to my supervisor. And usually the supervisor approves it. I'm like, well, there you go. You know, because I think Toyota is said to have, uh, you know, at least their goal uh, is 90% implementation rates. And, you know, I think there is a little bit more depth and complexity to, you know, if, if, if the manager thinks, well, that idea is not uh, realistic for some reason, um, then you need to talk about it. And part of the leadership behaviors um, you know, that, that help create a culture of continuous improvement is that instead of rejecting ideas, you know, that, that, that quote unquote bad idea is the starting point for discussion, coaching, conversation, brainstorming. Um, if somebody suggests something that's not practical, too expensive, too slow, um, you know, that, that's one of the leader behaviors um, that, that helps uh, keep people engaged. So, you know, continue, I guess, on the path of making it easy. Um, you know, at Franciscan, they generally document completed Kaizens. So they do, like we're in those binders at the factory in Japan, you know, kind of a single page summary that shows the before, the after, the impact, who was involved. You know, they have pictures. Um, you know, they're, they're keeping the documentation um, simple. They're making it easy, whether those are handwritten forms, um, 
a PowerPoint template, or I think one of the things people say about Kinexus is that we keep it simple and keep it easy for those who are using our platform to submit new ideas, uh, to work on them, to uh, document things that have already been done. Um, when, I, when I've, you know, so I, I think one example of where things get too complex, I, I've heard people uh, give feedback uh, a number of organizations I've visited where, you know, le leaders were trying to um, make everything into an A3. I, um, the last manufacturing company I worked at, they were trying to make everything a Kaizen event. So I think you know, in both of those cases, it runs the risk of um, not making it easy of making it too difficult. And, and a lot of times people find the A3 template as comfortable as I am with it, as, as comfortable as others in our audience might be today. Um, that, that, that's intimidating to some. And, and, and I think if they're scared off by the A3 or they're not getting enough coaching, then people might just say, okay, fine. It's too difficult. I'm not gonna participate. Um, I think that goes back to the argument um, that says, you know, you've got to start small, let people start with small improvements. They build capability and confidence, and then they can work their way up to saying, well, huh, this little problem is too complicated. Um, then you can introduce the idea of A3 problem solving um, as, as needed. Um, you know, I think of in, in healthcare, there's a parallel process around um, incident reporting, where if there's a near miss or if there's harm uh, to a patient, we hear complaints all the time of people saying, oh, these incident reporting systems are so time consuming and the, the software is so difficult to use. It, it's almost you know, like some people even cynically say it's almost like it's intentionally designed to discourage reporting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe that it might be inadvertent, but that's one reason why bringing it back to Kinexus, Kinexus customers asked us to build an incident reporting module that was simpler and easier so that people would actually use it. So, you know, I think those making it easy back to back to the question and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop rambling. I'm blaming jet lag for this. Uh, <laughs> I ramble sometimes anyway without jet lag, but making it easy is one of those things that um, I think one of the forces of destruction might be making it too complicated where making it easy allows people to carry forward with that intrinsic motivation instead of squashing it. Great. Um, I, we do have a couple more questions here. Uh, one is, uh, if we already have a reward system in place, do you have any advice for transitioning away from that into a more recognition-based system? That's a good question, because, and, that, and that's where I was trying, to, at least at the end, to be a little bit less strident and dogmatic than I might have sounded earlier, because, every, like I said, every organization has a history where... Um, you know, people have maybe have been conditioned to expect intrinsic motivation. So, um, you know, trying to go cold turkey on the extrinsic motivation might cause an uproar. So one thought that comes to mind is maybe in parallel, start doing more on the recognition side of the equation. And then maybe once that's in place, it's possible to kind of scale back the extrinsic motivation. I'm sorry, what was that, Clint? 
No, I was just going to say it, it. It sounds like that could be a bit of a tricky situation because what, what you're saying is if you just pull that off the table, you, you might have the adverse effects, right? It's kind of the, the hey, we're trying to do something good, but but no good deed goes unpunished, right? Um, that, that kind of sounds like what you're saying a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think I just think of different situations where, um, you know, I think of, uh, you know, like, you know, in a lot of organizations, salespeople are working on a very pay-for-performance incentive target quota-driven system. There are some organizations that do not operate that way, and they basically pay a salary and you know, a fair salary, and there might be profit sharing or, or you know, team-based bonuses or incentive comp. Um, but you know, I could see you know, if, if an organization has this culture of individual quotas and, and incentives that that's maybe attracted people who feel driven by that and and trying to transition too quickly might cause problems I mean, you know maybe it's like we were talking clint and i were chatting about college football um before we started the webinar and like maybe you know georgia tech is a football team that struggles where you know they they for the longest time used this triple option run-based offense like they never threw the ball and that means recruiting certain size offensive linemen and certain types of players and it's hard to recruit quarterbacks and wide receivers well then they brought in a new coach and and, and i think I, I have this right where they tried putting in a totally different type of offense but then the problem is it's college football you can't replace all of your players overnight like an nfl team did so there i think there's certainly been some growing pains and struggle that they're going through until they can start recruiting players that better fit um, that new system um, so I don't know. I don't know if there's a good parallel back to uh, continuous improvement incentives. I'm, I'm rambling again, but I mean, Clint, do you have do you have any thoughts on this from your different experiences, not just with sales, but what you hear from Kinex's customers? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I always kind of draw back to to my experience and and how a, a salesperson is motivated and the differences between that at Kinexus versus that elsewhere. Um, I, I know for me, right, I, I certainly find more value in in being recognized for good work and hard work versus being financially rewarded for selling a, a big customer. Right. I mean, I mean, that that's a personal thing for me, though. I, I can't imagine I'm that much different than a whole lot of other people. Um, that, that's kind of what I always go back to. And I, and I know you and I have yeah. had this conversation uh, at <laughs> least <a few> times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, you know, money matters. We all need to make a living and, and people want to get fair competitive pay. But, you know, there's there's just different ways of structuring that fair and competitive pay. Indeed. Indeed. So got a couple more questions. I got about five minutes here. Uh, hi, Mark. What is meant by, quote, explanation of variances, close quote, reinforces of destruction? Uh, this sounds like. Yeah, so I, yeah go ahead. But it sounds like what? I think you have the answer here. Go yeah, on, go this, ahead. this sounds like reason coding as part of a of breaking down a problem. Is it something else? Yeah, I think it ties more into the types of things I wrote about in Measures of Success. And, and you know, there, there's a webinar, a couple of webinars I've done on this topic in the webinar library, where basically ex asking people to explain or come up with a root cause for noise and a metric or you know, rewarding people for above average performance and then punishing them for below average performance when performance is just fluctuating within a range. So that was one of the topics stemming 
really emphasized. And he said leaders need uh, to understand variation and respond appropriately um, to, to variation. And, and that's, I think, what's meant by that phrase. So what are some common starting points when initiating Kaizen or continuous improvement initiatives in a company that operates in a traditional management style and has minimal employee engagement due to the, quote, historic, close quote, mm-hmm. non-responsiveness of the management team? Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 at the risk of sounding glib, you know, it's got to start somewhere with somebody. Um, you know, I think it comes back to leader behaviors and, you know, it, it could be that there's a executive change. You know, like when I was at General Motors um, in the mid nineties, I worked under two plant managers in this plant of 800 people. The first plant manager was a completely traditional management by yelling and screaming, blaming the employees, not engaging the employees type of leader. And then we got a new plant manager um, who was one of the GM people who got to work with Toyota at the, the, the NUMI plant. And he came in with a totally different mindset. And so, you know, sometimes at the executive level, um, a leader who has different beliefs and articulates these beliefs can, can help move the needle on the organization. You know, sometimes it's just a, a manager within their team who comes in and says, you know, I'm going to start engaging people. I'm going to start building trust. I'm going to express my belief that they can do something to solve problems um, and and participate. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to immediately jump to it unless it's a, you know, particularly charismatic leader, maybe, Um, you know, there, there's the logic and then there's the emotion of all of this. There's, there's the art of leadership. But um, if you get some people in that department who are willing to start, that can get the ball rolling. Um, getting if you have if you have a team of twenty people and let's say four or five of them are eager and willing and intrinsically motivated and they say finally someone's asking I'm going to participate in Kaizen there might be that middle part of the bell curve within the team that's kind of waiting to see I don't know if this is really going to be good and then when they see those initial people being recognized and, and good things starting to happen then more people. Uh, might start participating. And then there might be some who were maybe just too damaged by the historical system to ever be willing to participate. But, you know, again, I I would think of those as system problems. And, you know, it comes back to the question of how do we stop demotivating the next generation of uh, employees who come in? But I, I, I haven't seen a situation where a leader asks a department to participate and, and absolutely nobody steps forward. I, I think there's a lot of um, kind of untapped potential in organizations of people who have ideas and they're just waiting to be engaged. So we do have one more question. Probably got about 20 seconds left. Do you want to try to get through it? Oh, or we, 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 well, we can go a little over. I mean, if okay. people have to drop off, it's fine. But We'll, we'll go a little over. No big deal. So uh, my team recently visited the Toyota forklift factory in Columbus, Indiana. During the tour, the brand ambassador stated that they didn't like seeing green when it comes to improvement metrics, i.e. Mm-hmm. hitting the goal. They'd mm-hmm. rather see red, i.e. not hitting the mark, but seeing improvement. He went mm-hmm. on to say that if you hit green, you set the bar too low. Thoughts mm-hmm. on how to motivate folks to improve if they can never hit the goal? Well, so I mean, I think some of it comes down to how do leaders respond 
when the metric is red, right? So I have, I, I like, uh, I know former Toyota people who talk about um, cre creating a gap. So let's say we might, there might be an initial performance level that's fairly low, and there's, a, you know, there, there's, there's a target that not, that's not being met. The, you know, maybe it's a customer requirement. So the metrics in the red, and so we're driven to improve. And so then, you know, you exceed the goal. But you're not perfect, and, the, and this is where I think the the continuous pursuit of perfection kicks in. To where now, you know, if a leader communicates with the team and celebrates, okay, we hit the goal, that's great. We're going to celebrate, uh, but now we're going to raise the bar. And you know, I think you know if this is being done in a sort of you know positive, we're all in this together kind of frame of mind. I don't think that's a huge problem. If red means blaming the employees, you know, kind of like the back to that old traditional culture I suffered through in my first year at General Motors, well then yeah, that would be really discouraging. Um, you know, I've seen times where there, there's there's sort of a balance where, you know, when it, when a team is improved and um, is exceeding, now exceeding a goal, like you, you've got to have a bit of a celebration period um, and allow the team to sort of, you know, maybe bask in that a little bit before saying, okay, and now we need to do better. Like if, 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 if a leader rushes into that and says, okay, team, way to go. Well, now we're raising the goal. That might irritate people, right? So, um, you know, so I, I think, you know, it's interesting to hear Toyota say that, um, that, you know, red is not bad. It just means there's a gap. That gap is the definition of a problem. And again, in that culture, there's no shame in the word problem or the idea of a problem because, you know, the Toyota philosophy talks about mutual trust, mutual respect. And I think a lot of that, when it exists, is, is a really powerful force. So the challenge is, what if our organization does not, like when I was at General Motors, there was not mutual trust. There was not mutual respect. That new plant manager that I worked under spent probably, he spent months out in the shop floor talking to people, mostly listening, trying to build, um, you know, that, that sense of mutual trust and respect. Um, but yeah, in a lot of organizations, um, you know, those three examples I used, being red meant you were maybe going to lose your job or not get promoted. So people fudged the numbers to make things look green. Um, so I think it just goes to show how, you know, the culture and environment and the leadership behaviors um, really, really make the difference. Uh, so, so we do have one more. I, I think this one um, might tie a little bit into our previous question about mm -hmm. uh, companies operating in a traditional management style and, and trying to get people people on board with with something new. Um, what, what are good examples or best practices that companies are using to create an understanding of the intent and and in the consistent execution of a reward and recognition system? Um, to align existing leadership with new leadership or, or new thoughts that are coming into an organization. Uh, let's think, see. There's a lot. To, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'll, I'm going to again blame jet lag. Can Can you paraphrase <laughs> or summarize that for me, Clint? Yeah, since let's let's, let's kind of take this piece by piece. So, so first, like, what's a good way to to get everyone just understand why we're putting in a, a reward or recognition system? Um, let's let's start with that piece of the question. Like, what's what are some good ways people communicate that? How do you make sure that people understand that 
this is a positive thing and that we're trying to get participation through a reward or recognition system? Um, well, so, I mean, that's a different question. I mean, part of me wants to answer a slightly different question of communicating about why we're trying to create a culture of continuous improvement. Because again, like, you know, the reward and recognition system, we can try to tell people this is positive, but if they don't view it as positive, I mean, you, I mean, you could go through a lot of conversation, um, you know, and I think that uh, it, it requires more effort than just kind of putting out an announcement or a leader giving one speech or putting out one company-wide email. I mean, I think any sort of organizational change and, this, I think, ties back to the lessons from motivational interviewing, you know, that say, you know, change and acceptance of change is a process. It, it, it takes time. It's not like flipping a light switch. So motivational interviewing talks about conversations about change. And, and, I, and I think there's a really important notion there, whether we're trying to help people build their motivation around participating in improvement. Um, if, if we're trying to have a conversation about rewards and recognition system and people are being quote unquote resistant. And, and that's a very loaded word. Um, I think we need to understand what people's concerns are. And it's not just a process of, well, let me convince them, but having a conversation where, you know, you, you might listen to their concerns and then you might decide, well, no, maybe reward and recognition system isn't the right thing to do. So I think, you know, that's a couple of thoughts on that, at least. And then what, what was the other part of that? So I think the other part was just about, you know, what, what are some ways or best practices to sustain that type of, of system? I'm not sure if this is a bit more of a tactical question or not. Um, ho hopefully we can get the right answer here. But I, I think the question is more of what are people doing after they put that system in place to make sure that it's maintained and that we're executing on it consistently? Um, I don't know how to answer that for the rewards and recognition because I don't help people put in reward and recognition systems generally, you know, basically. So, um, but I think, you know, with anything, the sustainment challenge, a lot of that is set in place in the very early stages where, I think the very beginning conversations with employees about change set the stage for sustainability. I think a lot of times organizations try to shortcut the change process to try to force in a change. And then after the fact, maybe kind of panic and react and say, oh, my gosh, we need to we need to figure out how to force sustainability. I, at some point, that might be too late. I think if we've engaged people in change in a way where we're, there's agreement around a problem or an opportunity, and then we build agreement around uh, the changes or the countermeasures, we're getting input from people um, as part of that plan, do, study, adjust mindset. I think that sets the stage for sustainment, mm -hmm. um, I, I guess, is the thought I comes to mind there. So hope Hopefully that helped answer that that last question. We're uh, we're about eight minutes over. If 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 we didn't get the answer we needed on that last question, please feel free to reach out to to Mark yeah. directly via email. We'll make sure that that we spend some more time on it. Um, Mark, before we before we shut her down here, any closing thoughts from you? Well, I, I just want to uh, thank people for uh, attending or thank people for listening to the recording, uh, whichever it is. 
Um, you know, again, um, you know, I was sharing sharing some of my perspectives and, and drawing on some of the people who have been influential to me. But um, certainly, you know, happy to hear uh, opposing viewpoints or if people have examples that show, well, look, sometimes uh, you know rewards and recognition um, have been helpful or effective. I'm certainly open to hearing those stories without me uh, turning it into an argument. Uh, I'd like to hear people's stories or questions or feedback and um, look forward to people sharing that. And I'm looking forward to um, what we have in store for the 2020 webinars. And I hope people will um, continue um, signing up and participating. We appreciate it. We're offering no extrinsic motivation to do so. So we appreciate <laughs> people's intrinsic motivation to attend. Yep. I'll echo Mark's sentiments. Thanks, everybody, for your time. Thanks for your questions and your participation. And we will see you, Kai, next time. Thanks, Quinn. Thanks, y'all.